The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning and welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I'm glad that you were able to uh, spend some time with us today um, to hear about an important resource um, for us as a a country, um, especially with the uh, events that we've been dealing with over the last couple of months, but just ongoing issues that we've experienced. And today's show will be highlighting um, the National Disaster Distress Helpline, and we'll be talking about responding to natural disasters and mass violence. So just to give you a little bit of a a backdrop to the conversation, um, Hurricane Sandy, the Boston Marathon bombing, and the recent Ebola outbreak are just a few examples of disasters that affect not only those who experienced the crisis firsthand, but had a global impact as we watch these tragedies unfold before our eyes. When disasters occur, first responders are called into action to help provide support, intervention, and help to begin to restore order to the chaos that surrounds us. Providing help during disaster is the main priority of the National Disaster Distress Helpline. People experience a wide range of emotions before and after a disaster or traumatic event, and there's no right or wrong way on how to feel. However, it is really important that we find healthy ways to cope with what we're experiencing. So today we will be discussing the different types of disasters, the warning signs and risk factors after a disaster, and the help that's available to you to begin the road to recovery. So before we begin our show, I want to just remind our listeners that if you have any questions during the show or any comments, uh, please feel free to email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, that's J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com. So I'd like to introduce you to my guest today, uh, Christian Burgess, um, who has his master's in social work, is the director of the National Disaster Distress Helpline. And this is a program of the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and it's administered by the Mental Health Association of New York City. And it provides 24-7 crisis counseling and emotional support for anyone in the U.S. territories struggling with distress or other mental health concerns related to a natural or human-caused disaster. 
Prior to helping launch the Disaster Distress Helpline in February of 2012, Christian served as the training coordinator for the Oil Spill Distress Helpline. Christian previously worked for over 10 years in in youth uh, violence prevention and trauma intervention, including um, the director of school programs at Safe Horizons, which is one of the uh, nation's largest service providers for victims of crime and abuse. Um, And Christian also serves on the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster Emotional and Spiritual Care Committee and Health Committee, and he also co-chaired that committee from 2013 to 2014. So I want to welcome Christian to the show, and thank you so much, Christians, for taking some time today to talk with us. Thank you for having me. So I think one of the first things just to kind of to start the conversation is just maybe you could share with our listeners what qualifies as a disaster. I know that we talk about natural as well as mass violence, but what, what are the qualifying pieces that um, determine what a disaster is? Sure. That's a great place to begin. Um, a disaster can be defined as any unexpected event that has crisis or emergency implications, such as those that pose threats to self, others, property, Etc. And this can be threats to physical safety, but we also have to look at threats in terms of risks for psychological distress that any of these scenarios can lead to as well. And as you mentioned, um, in general, there can be two categories of disasters, natural disasters, which is what we think of with hurricanes, tropical storms, tornadoes, floods, the wildfires earthquakes and uh, resulting tsunamis sometimes that we Mm -hmm. see. Um, We can also think of public health emergencies um, like what you mentioned, Ebola, um, so other disease outbreaks as natural disasters. Um, And then when we think of mass violence, that's really under the category of what we call human-caused disasters. So in addition to incidents of mass violence like terrorism, mass shootings, um, that also includes transportation disasters. It includes technological disasters like blackouts or or even massive cyber attacks. Um, That can include radiological or chemical disasters like the Flint water crisis, um, which is also a type of public health emergency. And human-caused disasters uh, can also include incidents of community violence, uh, things like shootings by police that involve suspected or actual misconduct, um, and other forms of violence that may not involve mass fatalities or injuries, but nonetheless carry the risk for significant emotional impacts, um, and not just in the communities in which they occur, but across the country. And obviously, with what's been going on the last couple of months, I know we'll touch on it a little bit more in the show, but yeah. it's, it's just another example um, of when people are exposed to disasters or violence in other communities, it does have that global impact. So we will definitely be talking about that. I think in, in looking at disasters, you know, no one who experiences a disaster is untouched by it. But who would you say are at most risk for distress that might be caused by the disaster? Sure. Well, there are three general categories of people most at risk for disaster distress. Um, The first one being survivors. Um, So uh, anyone who is in the area at the time of impact, um, that could be people living there, working there, going to school, visiting. Um, So anyone who's exposed to whatever has occurred. Um, The second category is first responders, rescue recovery workers, and 
That's, that includes emergency personnel, so police, fire, medic. Um, it could also include others called to the scene to assist in the, the response. Um, but really also when we think of responders, we're thinking of those who serve a role. It could be um, workers. It can be volunteers at any um, point in the disaster recovery not just the response, but also the recovery, and that includes the long-term recovery. And so that's a pretty large category in and of itself when we talk of responders as a risk category for disaster distress. And the third category is our loved ones. Um, it could be loved ones of survivors and responders. So um, those are people who may be in the impacted area themselves, so they may also be survivors, but they could also be far outside of the impacted area. But if you know someone who is in a disaster impacted area, and particularly if communication systems are compromised in some way, uh, the disaster is so large that, that it, you have a hard time getting in touch with your loved one, that has significant distress implications. Um, but when we talk about loved ones as a risk category, we're also talking about loved ones of victims. So people who lost someone to a disaster, um, whether that was someone in the area or, again, it could be a responder. And when we think of loved ones, we also think of people who lost pets related to a disaster, um, which when we talk about disaster distress, that's often an area that's minimized or overlooked. Um, that's certainly something that we saw with Hurricane Sandy and, and with many disasters, people who were separated from pets um, or uh, just lost their pets outright as right. a result of the disaster. So those are the three general categories of people who are most at risk for disaster distress, survivors, responders, and loved ones. Um, within those three categories, there are actually additional factors that influence risk for distress and other mental health concerns. Um, and those are what their pre-disaster level of functioning was like. So, so before a disaster occurs, if someone is going through a tough time in their life, if they have a mental illness or if they have some, something that makes them more vulnerable to distress um, when a disaster occurs, that elevates their risk for distress. That can also include people who have survived or experienced disasters in the past um, and who particularly who had a difficult recovery related to that event. But then, and so a new event comes along and it might, it might upset them even more um, because right. they've had a, another experience with that in the past. A second um, thing that influences those three categories that I mentioned is the degree of exposure during the event. Um, when we talk about degree of exposure, we can look at it in terms of like circle of impact. So if you, if during an event you're exposed to pretend, potentially traumatic scenes where um, you, the threat, you, you feel like the threat to your life or the life of someone you care about is, is at some point um, a factor. Uh, you might actually witness death or destruction. Um, that kind of degree of exposure significantly influences um, the risk for disaster or stress following the event. And the third factor that influences those three categories of, of uh, people most at risk for disaster or stress is access to care after the event. Mm-hmm. Um, people's ability to uh, get support from their loved ones, from their social networks, uh, from healthcare providers after an event significantly influences how that distress might look for them. Um, and that's, a, that's something that, that's important to look at with disasters because sometimes those ac- that access to care is actually affected by the event. 
if transportation systems are limited or, or even down as a result of a disaster um, and people are cut off from their traditional sources of support, whether temporarily or long-term, um, that can significantly impact uh, a person's level of distress. Um, if there are services that are, that are uh, brought up, brought around or operationalized in the, in the aftermath of a disaster, which often there are, and we'll, we'll talk about that um, later on in the interview, um, those kind of, it, it, but if there aren't those services or if people have a hard time getting to them for some reason, um, that can also access or impact uh, a person's risk for distress. Um, right. so, so within those three general categories, we also look at those influences to the pre-disaster level of functioning, the deep the degree of exposure during the event and access to care post-event. Okay. And I think that's the piece that you're mentioning with the access to care, I think kind of leads into my next question about, you know, talking about the importance of emergency officials to include the mental health resources in their preparedness, response, and recovery plan. So what, you know, you you touched on that a, a bit, but could you maybe dive a little deeper into why that's so critical? Sure. Well, and as you mentioned, it's really when we think about access to care, that's why um, the emergency management officials and others involved in preparedness have to think about access to care um, throughout all phases of disasters, before, during, and uh, in the short and long-term recovery after a disaster. Um, because when we think about a hierarchy of needs in relation to disaster, understandably, we think for, first and foremost of physical safety and well-being. We think of medical care, we think of food, shelter, et cetera. However, we never leave our emotions behind in times of disaster. Mental health is a basic need. And indeed, sometimes our emotional or psychological they're severe in a disaster event. Um, those can interfere or prevent us from getting our physical needs met during any phase, again, during any phase of a natural or human-caused disaster. And so for this reason, it's essential that behavioral health is factored into any preparedness, response, and recovery planning. Um, and that can include identifying local, state, national behavioral health resources ahead of time and making sure that those resources are in um, management, what, they, what they call playbooks or just mm-hmm. overall plans. Um, you have to establish points of contact with these providers um, and, and when you do, you have to invite them to actively participate in VOAD, such as uh, what you mentioned in, in uh, the introduction to the interview, voluntary organizations active in disaster, um, as well as long-term recovery organizations. Um, mental health and behavioral health providers have to be involved in, in VOAD and LPROs. Um, and we also have to have training for all players uh, involved in disaster preparedness, response, and recovery in evidence-informed practices that address mental health of survivors and responders, um, such as there's a, a commonly used method called psychological first aid, um, and everyone should be trained in that, and that's something that you should do during what we call blue skies, so in between disasters. You have to make right. sure that folks are trained. So these are all elements of, of why mental health resources must be included in preparedness, response, and recovery. Right. Well, and I think it's important to, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm assuming, but if, for those that are listening that maybe are elected officials or other first responders who feel maybe they need a little bit more to their uh, response plan or preparedness plan, that they could reach out to, to the helpline to maybe get some support mm-hmm. or guidance on, on what might be some next steps. Is that a resource for people that way? 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, uh, with the disaster and stress helpline, we say that people can call for any reason. <laughs> I okay. mean, first and foremost, we are we're a resource for people who are struggling with difficult emotions um, related to a disaster. But providers, emergency management officials, um, we're also a resource for them. Uh, ultimately, when they do reach out, crisis counselors are, are more trained to provide emotional support versus give concrete resources. And so in that sort of triage system that we would have in place, um, ultimately we would want anyone reaching out for suggestions about incorporating behavioral health resources. We would want them to eventually get to me (laughs) so that I can give them some concrete resources, um, not just with the disaster distress helpline, but I can also connect them with other local and state resources as well. Right. And as uh, the uh, crisis center, I'm the CEO here of the crisis center in Buffalo, New York. Um, you know, we're, we're a player in that type of community response as well. Mm-hmm. So just knowing who your partners are um, so that you could have a solid response plan is, is really critical. So I think either, you know, reaching out for consultation to the helpline or um, connecting with your local crisis center and partnership um, as well, I think is, is a nice message to, to share with those that might be listening. So, um, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what family, friends, or coworkers can do to support someone that's struggling after a disaster? What are some kind of brief tips you could give? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, we were just talking about assets in terms of uh, local, state, national providers. Um, but when we think about who people most often turn to when they're struggling after a disaster, it's family, friends, coworkers peers. And so there are many things that people can do to support someone struggling after disaster from practical things like offering to run errands, accompanying them to appointments, offering to babysit for an overwhelmed parent or caregiver, just bringing over a casserole so they don't have to cook. Um, these kind of practical things can go a long way in helping feel, uh, helping someone to feel that they're not alone and that there are people that are rooting for them. In terms of emotional support, it's important to be patient have understanding that for many people, recovery takes time. Uh, There is no set timeline or one way to heal after a disaster. Um, And so that that takes a lot of understanding and patience on the part of loved ones. Uh, It's also important to just stay connected with uh, people who are struggling after a disaster, um, help them to stay connected, uh, which is that can include taking walks together, attending disaster-related support groups that might spring up in the aftermath of an event, Um, volunteer together during recovery, go to vigils or commemorative events together if they're ready, attend spiritual services together. They're just staying connected is a really important thing that loved ones can do to support someone that they care about. Um, In in providing that support, too, I also think it's important to listen without judgment and have empathy. Um, That's one of the best ways to support someone struggling. Um, just try, try to withhold from giving advice or telling someone what to do. Uh, listening is, can really go a long way in helping someone to feel validated and heard about the struggles that they're having. Um, and another way that you can support someone is to recognize the warning signs of distress and know that someone that you care about, um, when their distress seems to persist for weeks or months after an event or seems to get worse, and lead to potentially more severe mental health concerns like persistent anxiety, substance abuse, 
suicidal ideation or other possible symptoms of depression or mental illness, it's important to encourage that person to reach out for help, to talk with their trusted healthcare provider, or to contact a crisis line like the Disaster Distress Helpline. Okay, and we'll be sharing all the resources that people can reach out to the Disaster um, Distress Helpline um, a little bit later on in the show. So we are going to be heading into break, but I just want to remind our listeners that if you do have any questions during the show, please email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. So please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Christian Burgess, who is the director of the National Disaster Distress Helpline. Um, And we've been talking a bit about what is a disaster um, and the impact of that. Um, So I want to turn our attention to talking about the actual helpline. So, Christian, could you just describe um, what is the Disaster Distress Helpline um, and when it was uh, created? Sure. Uh, Well, as you mentioned at the the top of the the interview, the Disaster Distress Helpline is a program of the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, which um, is a federal uh, branch of the Department of Health and Human Services, and it's administered by my parent company, which is the Not-for-Profit Mental Health Association of New York City. Um, MHA NYC also administers the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline for SAMHSA, of which the DDH is considered a sub-network. And so um, we're all part of the same family of services, so to speak, under SAMHSA. Um, But what the Disaster Distress Helpline is, is a network of independently operated crisis centers 
um, who employ crisis counselors who answer the calls and texts that come into the disaster distress helpline. So it's really a, it's a public-private partnership with those players that I mentioned. Um, it's a program of SAMHSA uh, administered by MHANYC, which means that we set the standards, trainings, and practices for this third player, which is the network of independently operated crisis centers across the country. Um, and the disaster distress helpline uh, began in 2012. Um, it was an offshoot of the oil spill distress helpline, which was created in 2010 to, as a, a, again, as a sub-network of the lifeline. Uh, but the oil spill distress helpline was created um, specifically to provide support to people in the Gulf Coast states who were struggling um, after the BP oil spill in 2010 which, mm-hmm. as we all remember, also came uh, during the recession. And so largely the distress impacts related to the oil spill were um, closely associated with the economic uh, impacts that the oil spill had on that region. Um, and so SAMHSA created the oil spill distress helpline in 2010, but that was meant to be a time-limited project to end in 2011. But uh, SAMHSA decided to create um a national disaster distress helpline using the infrastructure of the oil spill distress helpline. And so the DDH launched as an independent network in 2012, um, essentially to guarantee that everyone in the United States and its territories um, has access to immediate crisis counseling and support throughout all phases of natural and human caused disasters. Um, And so uh, so that's that's when it was created. I mean, I think that in terms of why the disaster distress helpline was created is because, understandably, local and state crisis lines um, have always been and will continue to be one of the first go-to mental health resources following disasters and other traumatic events. Um, however, if communities anywhere in the country don't have these resources readily available, right. um, as many communities they still may not, um, or if such centers are overwhelmed or even temporarily incapacitated from a disaster. Um, those are reasons why SAMHSA created the DDH, uh, again, to guarantee that everyone in the U.S. and its territories um, has, has access to this, this kind of resource. It's similar to how, like, the National Domestic Violence Hotline or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and other national hotlines work. They're, they work to complement local and state resources. Um, at the national level to ensure that everyone has access to these kind of resources and through a dedicated network of crisis right. centers um, who employ counselors, whether that's staff or volunteers, um, all of these people are trained um, that, that have specific area of expertise. And in our case, of course, that's, that's expertise in supporting people who are struggling uh, related to natural and human-caused disasters. And, and just one other thing with that is one of the, another reason why the DDH was created is to also make sure that people continue to have access to emotional support during the long-term recovery, and that includes years after an event. Because for some people, um, like I mentioned, recovery takes time. And we're, for example, we're approaching 15 years after the September 11th terrorist attacks mm-hmm. uh, in uh, New York City in that, in that tri-state area, as well as Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the Pentagon. And 15 years on, there are, are people who are st- still struggling um, with mental health concerns related to their experiences of 9-11. And so, um, so the disaster distress helpline also serves that kind of need where even 15 years later, 
there's, there's a resource for people that can reach out. And that's an important thing because oftentimes following disasters, there's a perception that services come and go. And, and indeed, many do uh, come and go, particularly as funding um, ebbs and flows related to disasters. Right. And so, so another reason why the Disaster Distress Outline was created was to make sure that communities understand that there, there will always be this resource, um, including during the long-term recovery following major disasters. Well, I think that's such an important piece to share so people understand that because they're, like you mentioned, depending on what the person's uh, maybe protective factors they had in place before the tragedy occurred, um, you know, that ongoing recovery is, is, is a long-term recovery. And sometimes when other disasters occur or similar situations or the anniversary of the disaster happens, um, I'm sure that that triggers a lot for people. So to know that they can always reach out, even if it's a current situation or a past situation, I think that's a real important piece to share that that the helpline is always there at any time um, for people who've experienced these types of situations. And I just want to share the the number for the the helpline. So for those that are listening, uh, the Disaster Distress Helpline is 1-800-985-5990. Again, 1-800-985-5990. So Christian, can you talk about what are some examples of situations that the helpline um, has maybe recently helped with? Sure. Uh, well, ultimately, SAMHSA created the National Disaster Distress Helpline to be a resource for disasters that are really significant in scope in terms of the number of people impacted. So the kinds of disasters that either impact um, large metropolitan areas or, or even multi-regions, so multi, multi-states at the same time, like hurricanes and earthquakes and, and events like that. Um, uh, but it could also be events that, that might have smaller impacts in terms of fatalities or injuries or property damage, but still have enormous psychological impacts around the country, um, like the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so really, uh, over the past several years that the disaster distress helpline has been around, of course, there have been a number of the, these major disasters that with, with large scale implications. Um, I can say that the first year of operation, it was really kind of a, a um, less than six months or about approximately about six months after the disaster distress helpline began is when Hurricane Sandy hit, mm-hmm. um, which was the, the largest um, natural disaster that the country had seen since Hurricane Katrina. And, um, and so that was a, a, a big response for us um, was Hurricane Sandy. And then uh, a month, a couple of months after that is when the tragic shootings happened at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, um, which of course not only impacted and, and greatly impacted that region, but also, again, really the entire country. Um, and then shortly after that uh, was the Boston Marathon bombing in April of 2013. Um, but with these major disaster events, um, but of course there are always a number of smaller scale disasters that might, they might not make as many headlines, um, it might not be considered as newsworthy as some of the, the more high-profile disaster events, but certainly there are still distress implications, um, and and just we're we're constantly busy at <laughs> the disaster yeah. distress helpline with yeah. with responding to those too. I think most recently um, the shootings in Orlando 
which many consider the largest, one of the largest human-caused um, tragedies to occur since 9-11, um, that, that was also a, a sort of a big response for us in terms of coordinating with behavioral health providers and, and mobilizing um, resources for our crisis counselors to make sure that they're responding um, appropriately and effectively. Right, right. So what, what are some of the needs seen um, f- from the callers that are calling in? What, I mean, I'm sure they kind of range, but what are, what are a couple typical types of calls that you experience when somebody calls in? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I also want to mention, too, we actually offer a 24-7 texting component as well. Um, where um, individuals can text the keyword talk with us. That's T-A-L-K-W-I-T-H-U-S to a short code 66746. Um, and, uh, and then from there, they can engage live with a crisis counselor um, as well. And so with um, needs of callers and texters, um, I think in the immediate response to a disaster, typically we're helping people to cope with acute distress reactions. Um, These are overwhelming um, feelings where people might feel like they're not in control or or just having distress reactions like trouble sleeping, um, problems uh, performing daily tasks, uh, concentrating and focusing, etc. Related to the news of the event or even related to immediate exposure if the person is in the impacted area. with these immediate reactions, it's what we see is that people need to connect with someone um, in that moment, uh, they, and that's what we do. We're, we're helping them to explore healthy, co- healthy coping in the immediate response, um, help them to remember what has helped them to get through tough times in the past, as well as introducing new ways of coping. Um, and through that, we also can help them identify social supports. Uh, we can refer them to local resources in their community, um, whether that's in relation to the disaster or not. Uh, so we specialize in behavioral health resources and referrals. Um, we don't typically provide referrals to what we call granular community resources, like shelter or food distribution, that sort of thing. That's what the national 211 and 311 system is for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, we try to focus our referrals on behavioral health. Um, but uh, in terms of, that's in terms of the short term. Um, it, weeks or even months after a disaster, some of the things that we see is we actually start to see more serious mental health concerns present themselves. Um, we saw that with Hurricane Sandy. We still see that with 9-11. Um, and this is, so this is when people, sometimes in the immediate aftermath of a disaster, because people are kind of have that flight or fight response, um, sometimes the distress reactions take time to settle in for some people. Right. And it might not be until weeks or even months that someone realizes, hey, I, I'm, I'm struggling and I need help. And, uh, and it's kind of like the, the smoke clears and mm-hmm. it's then that they see the, the effects that the disaster has had on them and they start, they might start to identify feelings of depression or other um, mental health concerns like anxiety or even substance abuse and things like that. And so that's what we see on the, on the helpline, um, in the more longer term are, are more, perhaps more serious mental health concerns depending on the, the particular situation. Do you see a difference between, you know, we've talked about that there's natural disasters and then like mass violence or uh, man-made disasters, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you see any differences of the needs of those callers? 
between the two types of that, disasters? Yeah, it's a great question. I, oh, mostly it's very similar in terms of those, whether acute distress reactions in the short term or longer term mental health concerns. Um, and I do think it's important to highlight that whether it's natural or human cause, most people are able to bounce back fairly quickly with support from loved ones, like we talked about earlier. Um, but others do have a harder time coping, and and for the reasons that I mentioned um, earlier in the interview as well. In terms of natural versus human cause, I I really I think one of the I think the long term recovery tends to look a little different for natural disasters, especially if there's been significant destruction in a community mm-hmm. um, through the rebuilding and through the um, just that, 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 which can be months um, ahead. That, again, we, we tend to see sort of mental health concerns more drawn out in natural disasters. With mass violence or, or human-caused disasters, um, again, it depends on the nature of the event, but uh, it, the acute distress reactions might be stronger in the short term um, because with human-caused disasters, um, there's more of a disruption to a person in, their, in terms of their sense of safety and order. Um, and, and with human-caused disasters, it, there's, there's a risk, a greater risk for trauma um, if people have been uh, particularly exposed. I mean, again, that can exist for natural disasters as well, but because of the human-caused element, um, there might be more traumatic reactions and, and even a greater risk for things like PTSD in the long term. Um, people feel exhausted or weary uh, after human-caused disasters, like what we're seeing with these sort of back-to-back shootings over the past um, mm-hmm. several weeks in our country. Uh, so, so overall, they're a little similar, but there there are different dynamics with them. Um, and with the disaster distress helpline, it, it's important to emphasize too that this what we do isn't therapy. Our crisis counselors are trained; they have extensive training and. Um, both crisis assessment, intervention, and referral, as well as psychological first aid. But um, what we do isn't therapy. We don't diagnose. We don't um, uh, guide someone through any kind of therapeutic process. We listen. We provide emotional support to either mitigate those temporary distress reactions or um, help them identify a need for additional support in their community, And which is when we connect them and refer them to local behavioral health resources like um, their, their nearest crisis center or their uh, other treatment centers or their, sometimes in the aftermath of disaster, we see. And so we might connect people to a crisis counseling program if one has been set up. So, so anyway, I, sorry, I, I veered a little bit from your initial question, <laughs> but, uh, but wanted to put that in as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're, we're going to be uh, just a minute here out until uh, we head to break. Can you just share briefly, beyond the hotline and the texting services, other services that the helpline provides? Sure. Um, those are our two core services, but I, I, I think it is important to emphasize to listeners that the Disaster Distress Helpline is multilingual. Um, we provide 24-7 live support in Spanish. Um, through our hotline and texting service. Spanish speakers um, can call our hotline and press 2 um, uh, to speak with a Spanish-speaking counselor, or they can text the keyword Ablanos, that's H-A-B-L-A-N-O-S, 
to the short code 66746, at which point they'll, they can text in Spanish with the Spanish speaking crisis counselor. Um, and our hotline callers can connect with, uh, crisis counselors in over a hundred additional languages spoken in the U.S. through third party interpretation services. And so those multilingual services are an important part of what we do. And I also think that it's important for people who are deaf and hard of hearing to know that not only is our texting service an option, but um, people who are deaf and hard of hearing can also use their preferred relay provider um, or call 711 to connect with our, our hotline um, as well. So those are just a couple of additional services that we offer beyond um, in terms of uh, uh, unique populations beyond our basic hotline and texting. And I think it's important that you, you share that because we want to make sure that people know that the access is there for everyone, regardless of language or any um, impairments that they might have, that the, that is a resource for them. So we are um, going to be heading into break. So please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O. Voice America at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back to the show. I've been talking with Christian Burgess. He's the director of the National Disaster Distress Helpline um, and really have been talking about the impact that disasters um, have on us as individuals as well as our communities. Um, and I know, Christian, you've mentioned a, a couple times throughout the show about the recent um, shootings in Orlando um, being a, a more recent uh, example of mass violence. Um, you know, these in, these issues are impact all of us, even if, if we're not in that immediate community um, you know, the attention of it on TV, social media, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit, um, has an impact um, on us uh, in, in just having empathy for the struggles that people are going through. Um, 
so how kind of in looking at that though, how does that, um, how do your staff or yourself, um, you're dealing with these stories day in and day out. This is your world every day. Um, how do you manage that type of trauma um, that you're constantly exposed to as well? Sure. That's a, a great question and an important thing to discuss. Uh, I, I think in terms of a general sense, um, certainly with crisis counselors who staff um, the crisis centers with the disaster distress helpline as well as any, anywhere around the country, um, we're sort of under that umbrella of responders, similar responders. There's this notion that somehow we're supposed to leave our emotions behind when we show up for that shift. Um, and in many ways, that is what we do in order to cope um, with the moment and just focus on the task at hand. But like uh, everyone, um, it, some disasters may get to us more than others. We may have things going on in our personal life that that impacts our ability to to more effectively serve callers and texters on some days more than others. And so I think that it's important for crisis counselors, um, but again, any anyone who involved, is involved in response um, in terms of, I think you have to really do a lot of reflection and, and self-awareness, um, whether that's, and that's year-round, but also even before a particular shift. Uh, the American Red Cross, they have a great um, assessment tool uh, called Force Health Protection that actually they work with providers all over the country at sort of doing these kind of self-checks before deployments, um, which I think is really important. And But but I think that individual um, and group self-care is really important in, in the world I work in, um, in Christ, with crisis centers. Um, and that again, that's year-round, but also during active response to events. And so that can mean different things with, with individual self-care. Of course, it's, it's year-round. It's just doing what you normally do um, to take care of your mind, body, and spirit. Uh, but then in an, during an active disaster response, it's also it's making sure that you're taking breaks. It's, it's mm-hmm. being even more active during those breaks, like taking walks. It's reaching out to your peers for support. Um, that's where the group self-care comes in, too, because we also have to look, at, look out for each other. And again, that's year-round. We have to, you have to make sure that the, the programs where you work, that they have wellness programs in place. Um, one, one of the crisis centers that I've worked with uh, um, that's actually also a program of MHNYC, it's called Here to Help Connect. They have a wellness room in their crisis center, uh, which is a, it's a quiet space where crisis counselors can go during breaks and, um, and uh, in between shifts, et cetera, and just sit and whether it's, eat their lunch or read something or sit on the couch or they have arts and crafts materials. And so I think um, workplaces need to make sure that they're, they're promoting wellness year round. But again, during active responses, you also, you might have to have special team meetings where you do debriefings or you might have to make sure that supervisors are even more present on the floor, checking in with workers. Um, these things have been particularly important for me as well. I have to practice what I preach. Absolutely. Um, the, yeah. the disasters I mentioned, um, I mean, Hurricane Sandy, I was based in New York City when Hurricane Sandy happened. I wasn't personally impacted, but I was there during, in the months of long-term recovery. The transportation systems were out of whack in the, the, for days following mm-hmm. the disaster. So I had to, I really had to practice self-care after Hurricane Sandy and that was because that was in my own backyard. The Boston Marathon bombing hit me because I'm a runner. 
and there's there's a community within the within the running world. Right. Um, and, Bo- and the Boston Marathon was a very iconic event. Um, and so, it, after the Boston Marathon bombing, for me, it became even more important for me to make sure I'm running because <laughs> that is my self care. Um, and the Orlando shootings also hit particularly close to home because I'm an, an I'm an out gay man, and the the shootings in Orlando at the the Pulse LGBT nightclub obviously it impacted greatly there in Orlando and one of our crisis centers, Heart of Florida United Way that we work with is actually based in Orlando. So again, that happened in their own backyard. And so they were personally impacted by that as well. But for me too, that the Orlando shootings reverberated within the LGBT community across the country. And so for me, that was, it was, it was mobilizing and doing what I needed to do to coordinate resources um, and, and, uh, and support crisis counselors in the immediate aftermath of that. But it was especially important for me to do those self checks as I was mm-hmm. doing that to make sure I take, I, I was taking breaks um, and, and also taking breaks from social media because we've touched on this, but social media is a, is, is a both a huge resource and a huge distress <laughs> resource right, right. Um, in terms of our, our being glued to it. So well, why don't we touch on the social media? There's something I want to go back to after that that you you had mentioned. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, we were saying on the break that the impact of social media um, really exposes people to information ongoing, uh, you know, as well as the media in general. But I think with social media, it's just so more um, uh, present um, and constant um, that people are seeing images or stories or comments or opinions that um, can continue to trigger the challenges that they're experiencing um, after a disaster. So how, how do you kind of guide people about access to social media is, you know, and what they should or shouldn't be doing maybe from a coping mechanism um, after yeah. dealing with a, with a, dis, a disaster? Sure. I think one of the important things is to be mindful of what kind of community you're cultivating on social, on your social media accounts before a disaster. So making sure that you are surrounded by friends and family and because that's when social media becomes a source of support. Um, we, people instinctively come together after major disaster events. And so that's where social media can be beneficial. It can actually help you cope because you're, you're sharing and you're commiserating um, with other people um, that you're connected to, whether it's family, friends, et cetera. Uh, but you also have to just make sure that you're that you're looking at trusted media sources on social media. Try to avoid um, the the kind of media resources on social media that might have sensational headlines uh, and those viral videos and and stories are shared. It, again, just it's important to do that self check before you click on those things because even if you feel like you need to see something or read something or that you're ready for it, it can still catch you. Uh, kind of unaware um, and, and have you experience distress um, even without knowing it or, or it can stay with you, uh, you know, long after you've, you've read the story or seen the images. Um, and so I always recommend that people, you know, you get the information that you need, you, but you really do need to make sure that you're getting social media in doses um, because there can even be too much of a good thing. I mean, you can, hours can go by and before you know it, you haven't stood up. Um, you've been sitting down all day long. Uh, you've, you know, and, and your mind is, is 
you're risking that your mind is still engaged even when you log off the longer you're on social media. And so mm-hmm. it can keep you up at night. It, it can interfere with your sleep. It can interfere with your concentration. If you're a parent or caregiver, it can even interfere with your caregiving responsibilities. Um, and that's a, that's a thing with social media too and media in general, um, whether in, computer, TV, radio, be mindful of others around you because especially with kids, if they overhear stories, um, whether it's breaking news or what have you, they don't necessarily have the same abilities to comprehend what's happening. And, uh, and we certainly saw that with 9-11. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that was before really the dawn of social media, but certainly with TV and radio, a lot of kids, I mean, when you, when those airplanes were, those images were constantly replayed and if kids see that, they don't really understand that that's, that's past footage. They might think it's right. happening repeatedly. Um, and so we have to be mindful of those things with, with all forms of media. Absolutely. Um, I just want to kind of circle back to when you were talking about self-care. Um, I think that for for individuals like ourselves who come from uh, the field of crisis, you know, either crisis centers or kind of crisis first responders um, in the behavioral health side, um, we are very aware and conscious of the need to do self-care. Maybe we don't do it as, as best as we could, but we, we are aware and we work towards that. I, I guess my question question is when you're working with other disciplines um, who are doing first response, um, and I think of law enforcement, for example, uh, a lot of times that type of self-care isn't always um, encouraged or supported. Um, you know, there's kind of mm-hmm. sometimes innate views of, of weakness when, when people need to kind of look internally on how they're doing. Um, how does, does the helpline kind of give some guidance or recommendations for other disciplines on how they should be um, taking care of their own, if you will, because I think, you know, we're all exposed at at different layers here. And I would think that it'd be important to reiterate that message, especially for our our first responders like fire, um, you know, other emergency services, law enforcement. Yeah, well, we do. And it's, uh, I mean, we sort of, we have a philosophy of meeting the person where they are. And so even within particular cultures, there are still individual ways of coping. Um, and we have to be sensitive to that with, with cultural considerations and whether that's based on um, religion or faith practice or, or just ethnicity or what have you. I mean, we all sort of have our own way and our own lens at which we look through um, in regards to coping and self-care. And so, um, I, so with the, our crisis counselors, we're really... Um, Looking, helping the individual to explore what's worked for them in the past and helping them to remember um, that in the present, uh, it's important, particularly after major disaster events, to focus on um, active coping, which is engaging with others, utilizing a social support network, um, and doing those things that engage our mind, body, and spirit. Uh, and again, that could be for different things to different people. Um, but within the responder culture, it is, it, like you said, it is very similar in many ways to the crisis response world. And, but we really have to, have to understand that it is a culture and, and it, whether it's looking at it as being male dominated or, or even, um, kind of quasi militaristic, uh, in the response world. And certainly uniform service members, men and women are also part of the response world with the National Guard, with veterans deployed um, to help uh, in communities 
such as with groups like Team Rubicon, et cetera. Anyway, all of that culture, um, I actually think a lot of the response, responder culture has come a long way over the years. I think that mm-hmm. many um, response institutions and organizations, police, fire, medic, um, I think they've done a, they do a really good job of looking out for each other and they're, they're getting better and better. And, it, it, and even introducing some things that may be considered atypical for that culture, um, again, both year-round and in the immediate aftermath, like yoga um, or right. Uh, right. nutrition, nutritional foods and things like that. And, and I think that the volunteer world, the volunteer organizations active, active in disaster, also play an important role for that because that's often VOADs when they're deployed. One of the things they are doing is um, providing self-care and wellness and helping responders in that way. Um, That's great. Whether that's through just nutritious food or through um, spiritual care or emotional care, et cetera. So so I hope that answers your question. It was kind of a a roundabout way. Absolutely. So we're actually um, going to be wrapping up here, Christian. I want to thank you so much for your time today. You've offered so much information. So I just want to make sure I'm, I'm sharing all of your, your contact information. The Disaster Distress Helpline is 1-800-89, I'm sorry, 1-800-985-5990. You mentioned there's also the texting option, which if you text TALK with us to 66746, there's a counselor available. And also their website is is disasterdistress.samsa.gov. So if you just Google the uh, Disaster Distressed Helpline, you'll be able to get all of their information. Um, And Christian, I want to thank you again so much for um, being on the show today. And I want to thank you, everyone, for listening in and joining me for another episode of The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join me every week Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And again, if you have any questions, please email me at jpirovoiceamerica.com at gmail.com. So thank you so much for tuning in and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.